of our six uh, talks in the prophecy of Isaiah. Yesterday we tried to take, and perhaps it was a little too much to bite off and to chew, the first three of the servant son songs in the prophecy. This strange, wonderful, uh, somewhat indistinct to Isaiah person called the servant, the servant of Jehovah. Who is he? Of course, you and I now have the full light and we understand. And we were thinking of the servant's son and his tenderness and his truth and his triumph. And uh, in the second song, we were thinking of the preparation uh, which uh, he underwent in order to become the servant's son. And then the opposition. Even the Lord had opposition. And we know that clearly enough from the gospel story and then the final restoration the homecoming of people who've been right outside even the nomadic tribe of Kedar and the enemies called Selah they were brought in because the gospel is for the whole world and the Gentiles are included and then the third song the two aspects uh, the servant son received from God all that God wanted to give him day by day. His ear was opened morning by morning. What a vital time to have your ear, our ear open to the Lord. And because his ear was open, his tongue was taught. So that when he met a person who was weary, in need, downcast, he was able to give the right word of encouragement and sympathy. But as regards man, the servant's son gave everything, and he gave his back to, the, to be smitten and his face to be spit on, injury and insult. And he suffered that. And we, as the succeeding servant sons in a very minor way, ought to be the same. With our ears opened day by day to the Lord and his voice through the Bible, our tongues trained and taught in his way so that we can help people, and if necessary to suffer injury and insult. And many of us have suffered that for Christ's sake. So we follow the steps of the Master. Uh, this morning we come to the very heart of the prophecy, the very heart of the Gospel, and one might say even the very heart of God. And here is the fourth of the servant songs, referring to the man who dies and rises again. I just mentioned, I think, that Archbishop Stephen Langton, Archbishop of Canterbury in the uh, 13th century, who divided the Bible into chapters, did an absolutely marvellous job. I don't know what we would have done if we hadn't got the Bible divided up into chapters. And then, of course, there was a couple of Frenchmen later on who divided up into verses, as you probably know, which again was a very wonderful bit of work. But our passage this morning, the 53rd chapter should begin, uh, if it doesn't sound too Irish, at chapter 52, verse 13. Because as we read it, you'll see how these wonderful 15 verses are all about the servant, the suffering servant. There are five stanzas, each of three verses, and this is the very heart of the second half of Isaiah. 
as I'll point out more clearly in a few moments. So I think the first thing is to read it. And of course, before we read, as we always do, whether it's in public or in private, let's pray together so that we have the assurance that the Holy Spirit of God is enlightening us and enabling our minds to appreciate not just the surface meaning, but the deeper meaning. So let's pray together. Our loving Father, at the beginning of this new day, we give you our thanks and praise and worship. We thank you that every good and perfect gift comes from you. We thank you for the rest of the night. We thank you for food, for clothing, for friends, for interests, for our work, for all the many benefits that are given to us day by day and month by month. Lord, we acknowledge that you are the Lord. We pray that as we study this wonderful passage this morning, that our minds may be clarified and enlightened, that our wills may be moved towards you in a deeper way for commitment, for obedience, for dedication, for service, so that our lives may increasingly be beautified by your Holy Spirit and become more Christ-like and more effective in the world today. Uphold us, Lord, and strengthen us as we study this passage together. We ask it in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, our Saviour. Amen. <coughs> right, verse 13, chapter 52. I'll uh, <coughs> show the headings as we go along. The first heading, his exaltation. Verses 13 to 15. Stanza 1. Behold, my servant shall prosper. He shall be exalted and lifted up and shall be very high. As many were astonished at him, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the sons of men. So shall he startle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them, they shall see. And that which they have not heard, they shall understand. So the song begins with the first stanza talking basically about his exaltation, his elevation, his prosperity, and the astonishment that is going to come to many nations as they behold him. The next stanza, verses 1 to 3, refer particularly to his preparation in being the servant and in completing the greatest work of service which he ever did. Who has believed what we have heard? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a, like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or comeliness that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. 
and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. And then the very heart of the passage, the very heart of the, of the prophecy, verses 4 to 6, his propitiation, his crucifixion, his redemption, whatever word you like to use. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that made us whole, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Then the circumstances surrounding this great act of propitiation, which I've called his humiliation, verses 7 to 9, the, third, the fourth stanza. This is the sort of surrounding circumstances and what went on all the time. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is dumb, so he openeth not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked, and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. And finally, the fifth stanza, the wonderful restoration, the benefits of his passion, his own satisfaction at what he had done and the result of it. Yet it was the will of the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief, when he makes himself an offering for sin, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see, see the fruit of the travail of his soul, and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death, and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. I trust that we've begun to see the wonder of this magnificent song. Let's consider it in a little more detail. The first stanza, verses 13 to 15 of chapter 52. And you can see now how the whole thing is about the servant. Verse 13, behold my servant. Verse 11 of chapter 53, my servant, the righteous one, my servant. The whole thing is about the servant, you see. And now it begins with the, as it were, the ultimate, the end product the exaltation of this wonderful servant son. Behold, my servant shall prosper, he shall be exalted and lifted up, and shall be very high. 
It reminds me of chapter 6, verse 1, which we haven't studied this week, but we all remember it, I hope. In the year that King Isaiah died, said Isaiah, I saw the Lord high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. And there was that magnificent vision of Almighty God upon his throne, with the cherubim all around him. That was in the year 740, as you know from your chart, the, the year that King Isaiah died. And that was the year that Isaiah was called to this wonderful service. We started in on 735, in the days of Ahaz, but it began in 740, the year that Isaiah died. And the Lord is high and lifted up. And here is this servant son of Jehovah, also described as high and lifted up, exalted and very high. And as people gazed at him, they were astonished. And the nations were startled, verse 15. Kings shut their mouths at him. The Indian will do that to you today. Before a magistrate who pronounces judgment, the Indian lit lit litigant, litigant will say, Toba, 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 Toba. And he'll put his hand to his mouth as much as to say, I've got nothing more to say. You've said it. You're right. You've passed judgment. And he puts his hand to his mouth as much as to say, I'm going to shut up. I've got nothing more to say. And here in verse 15, it uses that picture. Kings shall shut their mouths at him. Job said the same thing in chapter 29 of Job, verse 9. Let me read it to you. Princes refrained from talking, said Job, when I was around. So great was Job. Princes refrained from talking and laid their hand upon their mouth. A sign of humility, you see, and wonder and awe and amazement. And when the servant's son is exalted and lifted up, the kings of the, of the earth are going to shut their mouths and be silent, filled with astonishment and wonder at his exaltation. But then verse 14, you see, reminds us of the previous marring which had occurred to his beautiful figure and beautiful person. He was, his appearance was marred beyond human semblance, his form beyond that of the sons of men. And the astonishment that people experienced in seeing his elevation and exaltation and majesty and power was all the more because it was the very one who had been marred beyond human endurance. That very one was now exalted. And so the exaltation of the servant son is described to us. And of course the verse from Philippians chapter 2, one of the most wonderful Christological passages in the New Testament, as it's called, uh, comes to mind. When Paul describes his descent into death, he became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. But because of that, it goes on to say in verse 9 of Philippians 2, God hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There's his exaltation. And it's prophesied here 700 years before in the prophecy of Isaiah. 
he shall be exalted and very high, magnified, the one who was marred beyond human semblance, and kings are going to shut their mouths at him. Yes, the many were amazed, and we shall see that word many again in chapter 53 later on. Many, many people, meaning a vast number, are going to be amazed and they're going to marvel at him. Stanza number two, his preparation for this great superlative piece of service, which was the propitiation for our sins. How was he prepared? God can't die. So how could God be himself a propitiation for the sins of the world? Something unique. I'm going to break the rules of grammar and say something absolutely unique, which is bad English grammar. But unique doesn't seem strong enough. Something absolutely unique had to take place before God, the judge of all the earth, could make propitiation for the sins of the whole world. God had to be linked to humanity. And so verse 1 tells us, that uh, verse 2 tells us, I beg your pardon, he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of a dry ground. The Lord Jesus Christ was human, perfectly human. Unto us a child is born. He was born of a human mother. The entail of sin, as it's called, the succession of sin, the sinful nature, which is within you and me because we were conceived of a man and a woman, was cut off in the case of our Lord Jesus Christ because he was conceived of the Holy Spirit. But he had a real human body, born of the Virgin Mary. It's a mystery so deep we can't possibly comprehend it. But this is what the scripture teaches, that our humanity and God's deity were joined together inseparably and forever in the person of the God-man. I wonder whether some of you younger ones particularly could remember this sentence. It'll be a help to you all your Christian life. It's been a great help to me ever since I read it years and years ago. It's a little difficult to comprehend, and, but put it down if you can. The Lord Jesus Christ became what he was not without ceasing to be what he was. You got that? That's a sentence by Calvin. It's very deep and it's very, very clear once you understand it. He became what he was not, a man, without ceasing to be what he was, God. Philippians 2 says he emptied himself. He didn't empty himself of his deity. That's impossible. He emptied himself of the glory of the immediate presence in the, with the Father when he became man, and he put on the somber garments of humanity. He became what he was not, a man, without ceasing to be what he was, God. And so he's now God-man. 
This is vitally important to understand because you'll never understand <coughs> number three here and you won't understand the justice of it and the rightness of it and the comprehensiveness of it unless you understand how he was fully prepared for it by becoming man. And out of the dry ground of apostate Israel there suddenly emerged this green shoot, this lovely living thing, the Lord Jesus Christ. There were so many unbelievers in Israel in those days, so few who knew the prophecies, so few who were waiting for him, just the few, Simeon, Anna, the shepherds, Mary, Joseph, you could almost count them on two hands. And out of that dry ground there came this living shoot and he was prepared. But the prophet begins, you see, in verse 1 by saying, almost with a sob in his voice, who has believed this? It's all been told here in the Old Testament, it's all been prophesied. But so few people believe. And even at the arm of the Lord, that means the power that God has shown, all the miracles that God has done, even they don't convince people. The arm of the Lord. But it doesn't yet reveal God's power and God's nature to people. People are so incredibly obtuse and blind and willfully so, so often. And poor old Isaiah, who's going to believe this? Even God's mighty arm doing miraculous things is not going to convince people. But uh, nevertheless, he did come. This living shoot began to grow, a root out of a dry ground. And then there were further shocks for the people of his day. Surely, if, if the divine servant son is coming, there'll be pomp and ceremony and palaces and uh, lights and glory and soldiers, and magnificence. Not a bit. He had no form or comeliness that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. A smelly, cave-like stable is not a very comely place, is it? And a poor couple, Joseph and Mary, and they were very poor, we know that because of the sacrifice that they brought on the 40th day to the temple. Just two little pigeons. This was the sacrifice demanded of the poorest. Rich people brought lambs or bullocks. These people could only bring little pigeons. It's not very impressive, is it, to be poor? To have rather dowdy clothes. And you see there was no form or comeliness, no beauty. No lordliness, a cross and blood is not very attractive, is it? Paul tells us the same thing in 1 Corinthians. The preaching of the cross is a stumbling block to the educated, philosophical Greeks. Oh yes, it's not very pleasant. Horrible, in fact. And then verse 3, he was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with sicknesses, literally, grief, sicknesses. Uh, 
What part of your anatomy is, is affected by sorrow? Your mind? What part of your anatomy is affected by sicknesses? Body and mind, probably, but body, certainly. There's a great deal of depth in these words, you know. And he took our sorrows upon him. Any of you, any of us, got a horrible, nagging sorrow in our minds today? We don't talk about it. But there's a very deep, painful sorrow way back in our minds somewhere. And we've suffered sorrow. And sicknesses? Well, it's only a few people who always talk about their sicknesses. But most people who suffer uh, don't. They keep it dark. And he took the mental agonies and the physical agonies. And that's why he understands us so perfectly. Hebrews 4.15 we have not an high priest who cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but he was in all points tested and tempted, like as you and I are, yet without sin. And the perfect servant son was despised, rejected. He was a man who knew deep, deep sorrow. He was a man who was acquainted with grief. He was one who was insulted and misunderstood as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. And this was all the preparation for the supreme, superlative, greatest possible piece of service which the son, servant son ever did, which is paragraph three. Surely he has borne our sicknesses and carried our sorrows, but we thought that he was being smitten by God for his own sin and afflicted. That's what the second half of verse 4 means. We esteemed him smitten of God. We thought it was his fault that he was being beaten up like this. You see, man always judges that way. Uh, you remember Eliphaz, the Temanite, and Gophar, the Nermathite, and all the rest of them in the book of Job. That was their whole story in the book of Job to Job. They said, it's because of your sin that you're suffering this way. And we didn't know that you were such a sinner, but you're a dirty, dirty, di secret sinner. And that's why God's judging you this way. That's what those so-called friends said to Job. And that's what these people thought. They thought this man, <coughs> the Nazarene, was being punished for his own sin. We esteemed him smitten of God. Verse 5 is the central verse of the central stanza of the central chapter of the central section of that whole area of Isaiah, chapter 40 to 66. Some of you are very good at mathematics and you'll understand. There are three sections of nine chapters each. 40 to 48, 49 to 57, 58 to 66, 999. The first section ends with, There is no peace, saith my God, to the wicked. 
The second nine ends with, there is no peace, saith my God, to the wicked. The division is absolutely clear. You look it up later and see. And then there's the third section, ending on the same note. This middle section of nine chapters is divided into three of three each. Three, three, and three. This chapter that we're studying this morning is the middle chapter of the middle three. And this verse is the very middle verse of the whole of this middle chapter. Just work it out mathematically. This doesn't prove anything. But to me it's very thrilling that right in the centre of the whole of Isaiah's prophecy there comes this marvellous verse. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that made us whole. And with his stripes we are healed. There's no shadow of doubt that the Bible teaches substitution. An undergraduate at Cambridge once said to me, I used to visit Cambridge every term, uh, speaking and working for the Scripture Union, and I got to know a great many undergraduates, and one of them said to me one day, I hate this whipping boy idea, an innocent person suffering for the guilty. It's absolutely wrong. Why should God take an innocent person and judge him and punish him for the sake of guilty people? I said to him, you know, you're talking through the back of your hat. The Bible never tells us that God took an innocent person and punished and judged him for the sake of the guilty. He said, what? It does? I said, wait a minute, wait a minute. And I turned him to one of my favorite verses on this subject, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 19. And I said, it wasn't that God took an innocent person and put the sins of the world on him and uh, let the others go free when they trusted in him. I said, this is what the Bible teaches, that God took himself and submitted himself to his own judgment against sin. He, the maker of law, the moral governor of the universe, in the person of his son, he himself, took the judgment and bore all the pains and effected the redemption and he who was utterly innocent was treated as though he was guilty so that you and I who are guilty may be rewarded as though we were utterly innocent for 2 Corinthians 5.19 says this God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself What is immoral if a judge passes sentence according to the law of Britain, Great Britain, on a particular person for a particular crime, and then stepping down from the seat of judgment, taking off his robes and his wig and everything else, he goes round the back and he, let us say, pays the fine himself. Is there anything immoral in that? Judgment has been passed. The law is satisfied. The fine is paid. But the judge himself has paid the price, the, the fine. This is grace. Infinite grace. Wonderful grace. Love. Compassion. And the guilty man, if he's sensible, will gladly receive that gift of grace. But the law is satisfied. There's no immorality there at all. 
And this is what God did. God was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that made us whole. And with his stripes we are healed. And then verse 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. Doesn't that really, quite honestly, sum it all up? Haven't you and I, all of us, without exception, been very self-willed in our lives and gone our way rather than God's way? And this, from God's point of view, is sin. Self-will. Going astray like a sheep. Turn, turned away everyone to his own way. But the Lord, Jehovah, laid on him the iniquity of us all. Cain said in Genesis 4 verse 13 my iniquity is greater than I can bear and I think many of us have realized that and then it told us in Leviticus 16 that uh, God was teaching the people how sin could be borne away and there were the two goats remember the story of the two goats one was killed as the sacrifice the blood sacrifice the offering the other goat the and confessed all the sins of the people upon the goat. And then the goat was taken off and disappeared into the wilderness and was never seen again. A symbol, a picture, that all our sins are forgiven. God says in this book, I have cast all your sins behind my back, never to look at them again. And the Lord Jesus Christ, God's Son, that's why it's so important to realize the preparation that he was God in human flesh. He perfectly fulfilled God's purpose in dying for the sin of the world. In the Hebrew, the opening word of verse 6 and the closing word of verse 6 are exactly the same. All we, we all, us all. Which is just a lovely little emphasis on the fact that all we with our sin are completely forgiven through the sacrifice that Christ made. All we have gone astray, but he took the iniquity of, of we all, or us all, to make it grammar. And so verse 6 begins with the same word at the beginning and ends with the same word at the end. We've all sinned, but our Lord's sacrifice has covered all our sin, and we can be completely forgiven. Will you forgive a very simple little illustration which I saw years ago and which I've often used with young people. It might be a help to some of you who work amongst young people. Let that hand represent me. All that I am, body, mind and spirit, all that I am, that's me. Let that book represent my sin. The simple, perhaps oversimplified picture which the Bible gives is just that. My sin is like a load on me. I'm covered with my sin. I may not think it's very bad, but God thinks it's bad because God is utterly pure. And there's me with my sin upon me as a load. And you can't see my hand. And that's exactly what sin does. Isaiah 59 verse 2. Your sins have separated between you and your God. And your iniquities have hid his face from you. I can't see my hand. The book is in the way. And this is what sin does. It cuts me off from God. 
Let that hand represent the Lord Jesus Christ, this wonderful, unique God-man. No sin on him. Even Judas said, Behold, I have betrayed innocent blood. Even his enemies admitted that he was without sin, sinless. He grew up the perfect little boy, the perfect teenager, the perfect young adult. And when we understand that he was God and man together in the one person, verses such as those that occur in the Gospels would say, he increased in wisdom. I never could understand that verse, because when I was young, my parents emphasized to me the deity of Christ. And I said to myself, but how can God increase in wisdom? But the Bible says he increased in wisdom. But then you see, when you realize he had a dual nature, the verse becomes clear. His humanity developed perfectly at every stage of his existence. And so the God-man is there, perfect. But what happened when Jesus died, this perfect servant son? What happened when he died on the cross? Look. The Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. When I first saw that as a schoolboy, it, it seemed to bring a ray of light to my mind so that I am free, potentially, and this is where a, a, a physical illustration like this, of course, breaks down. In fact, my sin is not taken off me until I personally respond and exercise faith in Christ and receive him as my saviour. But potentially, the sin of every single one here and everyone in the whole world, potentially, has gone. Because John tells us he died not for only for our sins, but the sins of the whole world. But the whole world is not saved. That's obvious. Why? Well, because one for one reason the whole world hasn't even heard yet. But the other reason is that the whole world hasn't received the gift. But the moment we receive, our sin is gone. And so the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. The humiliation, paragraph four, how he suffered, how he willingly gave his back to the smiters, as we were thinking yesterday. He was oppressed. That Hebrew really, word really means to have the payment for a debt sternly exacted. And the Lord Jesus Christ paid the full penalty for all our sin. His sacrifice was infinitely worthy because he was an infinitely worthy person. You get questions like that from teenagers today. How can the death of somebody 2,000 years ago affect me today? You see, they've got no idea of the eternal existence of God. Time means nothing to God, does it? He's the eternal I am. And that sacrifice 2,000 years ago has eternal merit and effectiveness. And the full debt was sternly exacted from him. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. But his humility and his willingness to die for the world enabled him to be dumb before his accusers, and he opened not his mouth. 
And we know from the gospel story how literally that came true. He answered him nothing. The rest of those verses are very clear, really. He was oppressed, he was judged, he was cut off out of the land of the living. The word generation means lifespan, really. As for his lifespan, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, living, stricken for the transgression of my people? So many didn't understand what was happening. Verse 9 is thrilling. The RSV here brings it out better than the good old AV, the 1611. So one up to the RSV this morning. They made his grave with the wicked, plural, in the Hebrew. Which wicked? The two wicked ones, the two thieves. And with the rich in his death, says the AV. But RSV is absolutely correct because the word rich in the Hebrew is singular. Who was the rich man? Well, Joseph of Arimathea. It's incredible how accurate the Bible is, you know. And it often comes out like that. They appointed, the word made means literally, they appointed his grave with the wicked. He was going to be, his body was going to be flung in the valley of Hinnom at Gehenna, the place where all the dead bodies were burnt outside Jerusalem. That's what they expected to do. But God had other plans. And God had this rich man whose newly made tomb was ready for the form of the Saviour. I don't suppose Isaiah understood this prophecy, but when it came true, it became clear what it meant. And then finally, the last paragraph, his wonderful satisfaction, restoration. It was the will of the Lord to bruise him. You know the verse in Acts where Peter says, he was delivered up by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. The death of our Lord Jesus Christ was no mistake. It was God's deliberate purpose in order to save us. There was no other way by which humankind could be saved. Only by the death of the God-man as a propitiation for the sins of the whole world. It was according to God's determined counsel and foreknowledge. And it was the will of the Lord to bruise him. And it was the will of the Son to accept the bruising. Do you remember how our Lord said, No man taketh my life from me, I give it up of myself. He said, I could call twelve legions of angels. But he didn't. Because of his infinite love for you and me. Verse 11 is so lovely. He shall see the fruit of the travail of his soul and be satisfied. There's joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents, says our Lord. And every time a person comes to Jesus and receives the Lord into their heart, the bells of heaven ring again, and there's great joy. Verse 12 is a note, has a note of triumph all through. I will divide him a portion with the great, he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Reminds me of Paul in Ephesians 4. Do you remember when he talks about our Lord's rising again? It says, he took captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. 
our Lord Jesus Christ's resurrection and return to heaven was a glorious triumph. And he recaptured those who had been in the hands of Satan and liberated them and freed them and took them up as a great train of triumph to the glory with him. All those who had died before. And there was a great triumphant, triumphal procession. And he, was, he had the portion of, of, of the spoils allocated to him, as it were. He shall divide the spoil with the strong. And the last four lines are really a fanfare of trumpets. Because he poured out his soul to death, because he was numbered with the transgressors, because he bore the sin of many and made intercession, intercession for the transgressors, because of that there's this great triumph.